You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Hey, Mr. McQuilkin, what's happening? A lot, John. Really? What's going on? Oh, well, I'm like, very excited go- for this episode. Why, oh, well, I know this episode. Before we get into it, what's going on on, on, on the McQuilkin front? Well, we're in the, the throes of fall across. Have you crossed over the threshold? Or are you guys like itching at the threshold? This is like, or has it started? They're primed, similar to your draft day experience in which Ooh. we're getting into. They're ready. There's a lot of potential here. And I'm aiming with words to empower their performance and make an impact as a coach, and be the hammer out there. Is today the first uh, actual practice? Yesterday was a team meeting. Uh-huh. So Which words me. were heavily involved. Yeah, well, I mean, usually with meetings, they can go one of two ways. It's either like, hey, we know what's in front of us, let's go, or we get what we call the false prophet effect, where in the absence of true leadership, false prophets appear, coined in 2000, 2001 by one Mr. John Wellborn while playing for the Philadelphia Eagles. In the absence of true leadership, false prophets appear. It sounds like there were a lot of false prophets. In in previous years, yes. And that's the aim. Part of this is we are developing. We're in the business of building hammers here at Power Athlete. And I get the opportunity as a coach to make an impact on some young lives and give them the opportunity to get reps leading before they take it into the real world. So when uh, the official season starts, it's uh, in it's January, a spring right? sport. It's a spring yeah, sport. Spring sport, practice January into uh, throughout May. So it's playoffs will be May, Final Four weekend, similar to basketball. Like you play a couple games in a weekend to win the championship. So lacrosse is the same season as basketball? No, bas- basketball is technically a winter sport. Oh. So college lasts much longer than high school. Well, I, I just mean in high school. So like I'm thinking for like lacrosse, these kids that are showing up here that are playing in this time aren't playing football and they're well, not playing basketball. Some some basketballers, but we got majority are football players and they have a spring football practice on top of lacrosse season. Mm. So those guys, those are the challenges. We spoke to that uh, one of our episodes about shin splints. Mm-hmm. Dr. Madzanis was able to help us uh, figure some of those things out. But, yeah, that's a lot. So now, right now, it's it's like the opposite. The fall is where we heavy emphasis on skill development, but most importantly, finding out who the kids are, hmm. how much work they put in the summer, and seeing who the potential leadership class is so that we can lean on them to really make the impact. Because we only have six hours with the kids a week, but then it doesn't feel like enough. It does not feel like enough. That's why we got to lean on leaders to then make an impact in the individuals, which I mean, is the leadership like for the, the individuals that you've anointed or stepped up as leaders, do they put on some like after hours, non-coach involved playtime, sport fun? Like, Hey guys, you know, our coaches can only work with us six hours a week. So we're going to have some extra work and we're going to have some free play or some pickup games. Well, that, that's the aim is to to show and help create 
different uh, lanes for leadership. It's not just, you know, rat fucking these freshmen to go set up the field and do all that. No. Yeah, that's not leadership. You no, know that it is. Isn't. That's like, that's like drill instructor shit. Exactly. So there, <clears throat> there's all these different range where you mentioned the false prophets, the rah rah dudes. Yeah. Those, and then there's also the the drill instructors who, you know, I am in a authoritative position. You must listen to me, and rules become uh, before relationship. Nah. So aiming to help them understand these lessons that just because you're a senior doesn't mean they're going to listen to you. Sure. So here's some guidance in place. I'm sure you've explained to them that people follow hard workers and people with talent. If you work hard and you're talented, people will listen to you because they want to try to emulate you. Just yelling and motherfucking people doesn't do anything in terms of helping them grow or more importantly, endearing them to you. Yes. And uh, put an emphasis on authenticity, meaning, yes, six hours of practice a week, but you guys see each other all over yeah. school, town. So who you are and the false prophet, in my mind, then they show up at practice and try to rah-rah and be the leader. But then they're dicking around to use that off the field and getting into some uh, not so fun shenanigans well, that could I'm, potentially pull away from young ones listening to you. Yeah, no, that uh, that term has been used for many, many years, uh, and everybody knows what it is. Quit dicking around. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure my dad used to tell us that too. That and uh, enough horseplay, and then we used to be like, we don't see any horses, and we don't know how to be playing. And now that we see horses, I know exactly what he's talking about with horseplay. Yes, and I also had the opportunity before my to, to visit my college alma mater and speak to my team in their young phase before they went into the air fall tournament. Uh, college starts a little bit earlier than high school. And I took some lessons about being the hammer and gave it to the kids. So I'll, I'm going to... Well, you're really lacing this podcast with Be the Hammer. This is like the 27th reference. It's almost as if you it is got the title. prepped by Harry Heppenstall to try to layer in this imagery with maybe a hammer on the shirt. Yeah. I mean, you know, just weirdly putting it in there. I appreciate it. You know, I'm yeah, surprised I'm you didn't shave a, shave a hammer on uh, your beard. You Wait know. till I take this sweatshirt off. <laughs> <laughs> if you waxed your chest and left like just a hairy hammer or actually imprinted it, that'd be amazing too. Yeah. Well, there's two ways that that could go <laughs> is I just leave the hair as the hammer or I just wax out the hammer uh, outline. God damn it. Yes, and I had the opportunity to speak to the team, but brought a lot of lessons learned from our experience coaching, being uh, athletes, but most importantly, one of the, the visuals and representations that you got handed on your draft experience from your GM. Uh, it was actually after the draft. It was during training camp. So we had, uh, or like I can't remember if it was, nah, we, were st- we, we, weren't in, um, we weren't at training camp. Because so we weren't in Lehigh. We were 1999. actually... 1999. 1999. Fourth round, been, second pick overall. Uh, yeah, fourth pick. Or fourth round, second pick overall. It was like the 101st pick. Um, so back then, they did the first three rounds on the first day, and then I was the second pick on the morning of the second day, which kind of sucked because I had a lot of teams reach out to me ahead of time and told me, hey, we're going to take you to our second round pick. We're going to take you with the third round pick. And all of a sudden, you see these te- teams draft other people, and you're like, ah, oh, fuck. So... Uh, needless to say, uh, draft day wasn't fun because you're having this large expectation and all of a sudden it doesn't happen. So, um, you know, the draft started at 9 a.m. on Eastern time. Uh, so it's 6.04, my phone rang, and I remember hearing it ring and being like, fuck it, I ain't getting up. Fuck these people. 
And uh, it was actually my brother's wife, who was his girlfriend at the time. She was there. She got up and answered the phone. Carrie answered the oh, phone and yeah. was like, started yelling at me, John, it's for you. And I got up and like, hey. Like a landline. Straight up landline, like house phone. Uh, I think, did I have a cell phone? I might not have had a cell phone at that time. Um, so it was definitely landline. And, or maybe my agent had sent me a cell phone, but I hadn't set it up yet. Um, but phone rings and like, Hey, we just drafted you with our, with our pick or, you know, how excited are you? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like my brother turns on the TV and we're watching, waiting to see the ticker to see who drafted me. And it flashes John Wellborn, Philadelphia Eagles. And I'm like, I'm like, sweet. I guess I don't even know where Philadelphia is. Uh, the only thing I knew about Philadelphia, it was probably like the home of the continental Congress. And I knew there was a big bell with a crack in it. That was all I knew about Philly. And what was weird was uh, Juan Castillo, who was the offensive line coach, had come out and worked me out for like three and a half hours, like the longest workout, like so unnecessary. And he had actually injured his leg. And uh, at some point, like I think he had like something happened where he hurt his leg. And so his leg wasn't like, uh, um, you know, like really up to it. So we were like coming off doing all these drills. And so finally, like at the fucking three hour mark, I'm like, God damn it. So he wanted me to like, Basically, at that point, he like went to hold the bag and was like, "Hey, I want you to come off the ball and just you know take like one too fast and and, and uh, fit up on the pad." And so um, I took a zone step and just fucking came off and fucking hit the bag as hard as I could and fucking tea kettled him. And uh, that ended the workout, and I was like, "Oh, thank God," because one, I didn't want to go play for the Eagles, uh, you know, at the Why time. Not? Well, uh, like I'm a California guy, right? Like Philly was like on the East Coast and um, I, fuck, I'd never been there. I mean, I didn't know anything about it. And uh, it just seemed like it was 100 million miles away. And, uh, you know, the coach was like unnecessarily putting me through. Like all the workouts I did were always an hour. And not to say I didn't want to go out and work, but like just kept doing, adding more and more shit. Like he, we finished everything within 45, 50 minutes. And then it was like another two hours of just absolute nonsense. Like, I want you to do like hopscotch and stew. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. So um, I just teach that, That's the test, John. Uh, yeah. Like, well, I mean, here's the thing. Like I had like, I did what he was, he was asking me to do. And then it was kind of egregious. So uh, I just came off and smashed him. And I was like, good, this is a fucking endless <laughs> thing. I don't want to go to this team anyway. And uh, the Eagles hadn't been very good. Um, you know, I didn't want to play on turf. Like there was like a whole yeah. lot of reasons I didn't want to go there. And so, of course, then all of a sudden they draft me, which was weird because on day one they drafted a guard ahead of me, a guy named Doug Brzezinski. And so, I mean, uh, they drafted McNabb, uh, Barry Gardner, who was a linebacker, and then Brzezinski. And so, you know, you're kind of going through, you know, and like the Raiders and all these teams had called and said, hey, we're going to draft you. And then, like, you see the draft come up. And they drafted other offensive linemen. So the teams that had worked me out, or more importantly, the teams that had said, hey, we're going to take you, even though the Eagles had never called and said shit to me. Um, I kind of just took mental note and was like, oh, shit, right. You know, these are the guys ahead of me. So it was weird that in, they drafted a guard in the third round and then I had played tackle, but yet they had kind of like, for some reason it was really weird. I played tackle in college, but yet I was rated as a guard in the national report. And I was like, man, like the, the 28th or 30th rated guard on the national report, which like the 28th or 38th or 30th rated guard in the national report doesn't even get uh, a tryout in the NFL. So I had gone to the combine. And so I remember my agent, when he called me, he's like, dude, you got invited to the combine. You played on a Pac-10 team. And these coaches are coming working out, but your rating is super low. Like you're like where your rating sits, you shouldn't even be 
offered a free agent deal, let alone have coaches come work you out. Like, what's going on? And I was, and then the weird part was when he told me that you're rated as a guard. I'm like, I, I played tackle all through college. So that was kind of weird. So then um, I get drafted to go to the Eagles. We show up, and I think I've told the story before, but if you haven't heard it, fucking buckle up. But um, my brother Ed, who has always been like my mentor and really just my best coach in the world, uh, when I went to college made an interesting point. He said, dude, he's like, when you go to college, you're going to know the deal. You need to find the biggest dude prison style day one, look for a fight and fuck that motherfucker up. So sure enough, I'm a rookie. I go in in college. Uh, I think it was Andy Jacobs who was a big defensive lineman. We got into a little tussle and he tried to like, he thought he was like a WWF wrestler. He like basically thought he could like grab my helmet and like kick his leg up and put his leg on my chest. And I think he thought that he was going to like Superman kicked me or some shit. And so I grabbed his leg and fucking just basically lifted him off the ground, slammed him on his back and just started dropping haymakers. And then there was like a, uh, basically I slammed him. The entire defense swarmed me. My entire offense stood there and watched me get my ass kicked by fucking 10 dudes as I was trying to smash this dude and got into just an epic brawl, taking taking on like me versus slamming one dude, basically just taking shots from 10 other guys while my entire offensive line and the entire, because uh, we were doing, um, I was a rookie, so offense was uh, starters were down there with right. uh, yeah. defensive young guys. Offensive young guys were running plays for the defensive starters. Uh-huh. I get into a huge big melee, and my entire offense with st- starting defense, with starting defense, plays the table, watches me get fucking pummeled, and at some point my helmet gets ripped off. Because I'm fucking still just well, going. that's when you break shit up, yeah. Oh, no. When the helmet came off, then I got hit with my own helmet. Oh, my God. And got fucking pummeled without my helmet on. These dudes ripped my I mean, it was Reagan Upshaw, Dwayne Clements, who are uh, were first-round draft picks. Good dudes. Complete fucking criminal thugs from fucking Oakland. Like, just bad fucking dudes. Ripped my helmet off. Take my helmet. Are beating me with my own helmet. And punching <laughs> me and fucking me up. You and, needed jujitsu. Well, I knew. Fuck you. I knew. Fuck you. <laughs> Uh, there's, you know, you could be a jujitsu player, but if somebody is well fucking versed in the art of fucking people up and fuck you, uh, your jujitsu doesn't work against me. You know, those things where it's like, oh, your, your form of martial arts does not work against my martial arts. Uh, as, uh, Craig Douglas told me, my, um, my capacity for violence was so high that it nullifies most everything other than guns and knives or bats. What a compliment. Yeah. What a compliment. He's like. (laughs) Yeah, Craig's like, you're just, uh, your capacity for violence is so high. I don't know how, I, I don't know if there's no necessarily. In close quarters. In close quarters. Like, you put me in a phone booth, I don't give a fuck what you know. We're going to fucking kill you. Um, so, and there aren't that many people that have had to fight 11 uh, starting, defense. starting defense guys that have myself. But my, uh, and mind you, the other offensive line guys, um, Probably scared to death. As Probably rookies. also freshmen, yeah. Yeah, uh, other freshmen just standing there watching. So it was great as I got my ass pummeled and the whole thing gets breaking up. I'm fucking bloodied. Uh, they ripped my helmet off, hit me with my own helmet, which is a huge fucking no-no. Uh, and then we had to go into meetings and my offensive line coach, Tom Cables, watching the video. Of the and, fight. Of the fight. Brings it in. We don't even watch video that day. We just watched that fight. And he stopped it. And he was like, you know, we're getting into the tussle. And he's like, look at John. He gets into, a t- he gets into the tussle, gets into the fight. He slams Andy Jacobs starting fucking defensive end and proceeds to drop fucking haymakers on him. And you fucking pussies sit there and watched. Entire defense swarms. All of a sudden you see my helmet get ripped off because one of the dudes rips it off this way. And then you see the helmet come over and they're like, and he's basically getting beaten with his own helmet 
And all John does is you can see me as I'm getting hit, just still fucking wailing, realize I'm going to get my ass kicked, but I'm going to lay it on this motherfucker's ass. I'm beating somebody. One. And, And then he just started circling the individuals watching and proceeded in being like, flip the fuck out. Now, Tom Cable is uh, an absolute firecracker, uh, fucking buzzsaw wrecking ball of a human being, um, an extremely angry, angry individual, fucking flips out, turns off the tape, turns and goes, all you motherfuckers outside, takes him outside and fucking punish these dudes, as he should have. Um, and uh, next time there was a fight, you know what happened? Dudes were flying in because nobody wanted to get punished. So it was kind of a, it, it was good in that deal. But my brother, but instantly what happened was from that moment, uh, no longer was I a punk. And, you know, the older dudes respected me because they knew I would throw down. Um, so when I went to the NFL, my brother calls and he was there and he's like, you know, what's going to have to happen? Same deal from college. You have to find the biggest dude and fucking whoop his ass. You got to wait. So sure enough, we're in training camp or uh, in mini camp. I think it was mini camp and I'm playing left tackle and uh, I kind of figured out that this dude Bill Johnson was kind of like an eight eight year vet old dude might as well have been 400 years old he was probably 30 and uh, he was kind of like the kind of the ringleader he was kind of like the you know head motherfucker in charge and um, I was like right, we're watching this he's playing right defensive tackle I'm like all right so all of a sudden we're uh, we're running um, I'm running with this guard and uh, the guard wasn't very athletic. So Bill gets him, like, kind of goes a little on an outside shake move. And, the, like, in jiu-jitsu, it's like a, you know, I think they call it, like, a, a collar throw. So basically grabs him by his pads, and the guy overleaned and fucking chucks him and comes out wide. My guy ended up dropping into coverage, so I was sitting right there. And so as he's coming, I step inside, give him a shoulder shot, and, uh, you know, fucking basically didn't get there. So then um, the guy who got thrown to the ground instead of staying on the ground, tried to pop up and cut him as I hit him. So the dude goes down, gets up, and while the guy's on the ground, he stands up and fucking stomps on him and starts motherfucking him, which point, bing, in my head, here's my moment. Biggest dude. Now I got caught. Yeah, bully. Now I get a chance. So I fucking basically take three steps, hit him with my shoulder, launch him off the ground, and proceed to drop fucking haymakers on him. Whole fucking team fucking in the mix. <laughs> Fight ensues. Everything broken up. Fucking coaches yelling, screaming. I get kicked out of practice as a rookie draft pick. First, like, this is my first go. I get kicked out, and I'm like, fuck. I'm probably going to get cut, you know, because I don't know any better. I mean, but I'm like, hey, dude, I, I came here to fucking prove that, uh, one, I'm a tough dude, and two, like, this worked in college, so, like, why won't it work again? And, uh, and then I got kicked out of practice. I'm like, oh, fuck, dude. Maybe my career is over before it starts. Maybe they boot me out of this thing. What, you just go chill in the locker room? How's yeah, they just fucking basically Andy Reid's like, get your fucking, you know, throw on. I don't need this fucking, fucking jiggles. And uh, throws me out. And uh, I go back. I just fucking walk back, um, get in my truck and drive back. To, and we get all that. And so that was the last day of mini camp. <laughs> and then uh, we leave, you know, and like, I was like, oh, fuck, dude. Like, you know, like that was the end of it. Minicamp's over. I go back to, to Berkeley. And then I have to go back out there for OTAs. And then that's when I showed up. And like I'm like out there and I'm like walk in and I'm like, hey, where are all those old dudes? Like, you know, there's a whole bunch of like missing lockers. And like, oh yeah, we got we cut those dudes. You know, you're gonna play right tackle. And so uh when we were in that OTA thing, 
and where the Be the Hammer comes from is Tom Modrak, who was our GM at the time, had been a, a real legendary head of scouting for the Phil- or for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, gets hired as the GM for Andy Reid, and um, brought over Rick Burkholder, who's the head trainer. They worked together in Pittsburgh. So Tom was always very friendly to me. Walks over, kind of kneels down, and goes, "Hey, I just want to let you know, of any pick in this draft, you were the guy that I went to bat for. Like you're my pick. Everybody gets one. You're my guy. Our fates are intertwined." I was like, all right. And what was weird was Lonnie Paulet, who was, uh, uh, had played for the Steelers, played for the, uh, the Browns, um, was like kind of an old vet they brought in. I remember Lonnie, who actually Tom had drafted to Pittsburgh, came over to me and he's like, you know, he goes, I'm just going to give you. And he, he was always real good in like terms of like mentorship and just giving you little, little tidbits. But he made a funny point to me. He goes, yo, man, if, uh, like, if you're somebody's guy, like if you're somebody's boy, like if you're their pick, uh, because everybody here gets gets a chance to like get like their word in. Some people have more weight. Obviously, the GM head coach, he's like they're going to let you know real quick, like they always do. And uh, sure enough, Modrak rolls over to me and tells me this. I'm like fucking like, did he tell Lonnie this? Like it was just kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but he kneels down and he's like, hey man, I just want to let you know that our fates are intertwined. You know, we uh, like you do well, I do well. You know, you were the, you were the guy I went to bat for. Which was funny because years later I told Andy that who fucking was like, that's bullshit. You were, you know, who knows? So I'm like, if that's the case, then why'd you fuck me on my contract? Uh, but long story short. Um, and then he's like, I want you to remember, I'm going to tell you two things I want you to never forget. One, remember football's a violent game played by violent individuals who get paid a lot of money to do violence on behalf of old rich white men. Like, you're not a fucking actor. You're not an entertainer. You're not here to be a celebrity. You get paid to do violence on behalf of these individuals. Just never forget it and never get too far from that. I was like, check. And then the other one was, remember, on every play, you're either the hammer or the nail. As long as you're the hammer more than the nail, you're going to survive this game. You're going to walk away. If you're the nail, they'll fucking cart you out of this thing. Yeah. So he's like, be the hammer. I was like, be the hammer. And so that's where that story comes from, was to be the hammer. Mm -hmm. And so when I played... um, I used to always write myself messages. So what I would do getting ready for the game, I would I always wore like receiver gloves. And I'm probably like a 2 or 3X, but I wore XL receiver gloves. And they were these Nike leather gloves that I really liked. And I would pull them on, and they were so tight that it would take me a few minutes to like stretch them out to get them on my hands. So then I would put them on. Then I would take uh, pads. like the they're, they're called butter pads, but they're the pads that they put on to ankles so that you don't get tape cuts. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but like when they do the pre-wrap, they'll put like these pads yeah, yeah, on. With like Neosporin. And, yeah, and they yeah, always yeah. put a pad on so you wouldn't get tape uh, tape cuts. So yeah. I would grab a whole bunch of those, and I would put the butter pads all on the palms of my hand. And then from there, I would take a roll of tape, and I would basically do the tape that I used when I boxed. So I would start, and I would go through the wrist, and I'd come through the wrist, and I'd go through the fingers, and I would basically tape, and I would cast my hands super tight to the point where it cut off circulation. Then I would have to go dunk them in water to get them to loosen a little bit. And then I would kind of make sure that they were nice and tight, go through. And um, then when I was done, I would always write little messages uh, like for things to me to run, uh, to work on. So one of them was like stay low, quick feet. And the bigger one was like big punch. You know, like if, uh, if I was playing, let's say, against a guy like Warren Sapp, who loved the little matrix outside move, what he would do is he would give you his shoulders and like kind of bait you into a punch and then he would do this move that we call the matrix where he would like melt away and do this little can of hand swipe 
And it was a really good move. I mean, he would go almost like one, two, give you the shoulder. And then what he could do is he could take this outside leg and like reach. And so what guys would do is they would go one, two, punch, and they would see the chest. And as they punched, they would lunge because they were thinking he was coming for a bull rush. And he would mix it up with a bull rush off of this same move. So he would set the bull rush three or four times and then give you the matrix. Mm-hmm. And then he would do this little shimmy thing and step really wide. Dudes would lunge. He would just do, and then he'd sack the quarterback until he got all the sacks. So he, um, my rookie year, uh, Doug Brzezinski goes against him, and Doug was the starting left guard. And uh, uh, Doug gave up like three sacks and like four hits off of this one move. So like, like in like a an, an intelligent individual would do, you know, I'm watching the game and I'm like, fuck, dude, that's a nasty move. Like how like how do you beat these moves? Mm-hmm. So uh, when I was injured, I think I've told you the story about uh, I didn't have shit to do. I would show up. They wanted me to show up late because they didn't want guys to see an injured. I would go lift weights. I'd do rehab. I'd go back and lift weights again. Then I'd go watch film. And uh, I started watching all like these, you know, individuals. Everybody had their own little patent move. Um, you know, uh, Sap had his matrix. Um, Jason Taylor had his this move. Uh, Strahan had his, you know, double hand swipe. I mean, everybody had something uh-huh. that when they needed a sack. Wheelhouse. Like, this was their wheelhouse. And they set like they would... You know, if you're a, a defensive lineman or a defensive end or whatever in the NFL and you end up with 16 sacks in a season, you're going to the Hall of Fame. J.J. Watt, yeah. yeah. So what these guys would do is they knew they had 70 plays. Let's say for a team like the Eagles, at the time we were fairly a little unbalanced. We were probably going to throw the ball 40 times a game and run at 30. So they knew they had 40 opportunities. Of those, you're probably going to have 20% is going to be some form of play action. Right, they're going to have a, probably a twenty percent of three step, and maybe you're going to get into like maybe, nah, maybe like maybe ten percent is going to be a seven step drop, and maybe they're going to give you fifteen percent of a five step. So they know that if you're rushing the passer on a seven step drop, like you know, they know that they're going to have maybe a handful, maybe maybe at most seven to eight opportunities to rush the passer legit. So with that, they might spend an entire game showing one move to know for that like third and seven down by you know eight points and uh-huh. we're you know the down and distance is like the 30 yard line going in and this is the opportunity they have if they get a sack it's going to knock them yeah, out of the field throw goal. the curveball yeah they know like based on down and distance and the defense and they're going to what they're going to do is they're going to stunt everywhere everybody away and they're going to put that tackle on an island right and they're going to expect you to go make that fucking play mm-hmm. um and then that's the one that they set up. They sent. They spent three hours that Sunday setting up this one move. So they're pretty intelligent. Well, yeah, they're they're not. I mean, I make jokes about <laughs> defensive linemen being fucking knuckleheads, right. but defensive ends were usually pretty sharp. I mean, especially when you played against a Bruce Smith. Like, god damn it, playing against Bruce Smith was like playing against. Um, we'll use another uh, Morpheus. He was like the Morpheus of football, right? Well, like to he was quote so, another Redskin, uh, Green. I forget his last name, but my dad's a Redskins guy. Essentially taught me the lesson: their speed and their experience. So that cornerback, he played eighteen years. Yeah, yeah it's um, I know exactly what you're talking about. Green, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, but so Bruce Smith, go yeah, ahead. so so Bruce Smith, who was the the Morpheus of football, um, you know, he would he had this amazing double hand swipe outside move, where he would like take these really long, like two or three really long strides, and he would just kind of use this like double hand. Like it looked like a windshield wiper 
and he could cover so much distance. And so you end up watching this stuff and there was a whole bunch of like technique stuff that you would end up doing. And in the back of your head, you're like, I know he's going to bring the bull rush because he's going to set this thing up. And I was smart enough to start looking at tendencies and to know like you never double hand punch Bruce Smith, right? What you would do is you would set off, you would flash your inside hand because you knew the windshield wiper was coming and you'd almost give him the inside hand to see the windshield wiper and you'd almost one punch. So my entire training in the off season was built upon like setting off a of one hand, double punching, you know, touches, punches. Like we, we had all these different punch pads to the point where I can still do this to close my eyes and I can touch numbers. They could be like one, two, four, you know, different stuff. Yeah, I mean, points right. like uh, pinpoint accuracy. Um, and that was the way I made my money. I had the ability to shoot a single hand or even a double hand and hit with enough intensity and ferocity where I could restart dudes. So like a guy like Sap, for example, he's basically basing off a of timing. He's going one, two, showing you shoulders and then coming outside in his matrix. But if you hit him so hard on his first step that he can't get to his second step, but then, you know, like, so there's, it, it was like a chess game for me. Right. You know, I knew that these guys were going to set it up, but um, I'm belaboring this, but I used to write different things on my, on my tape. And, um, you know, one of them was like, don't lunge, bend your knees, stay low, head and hands. And I used to just write like whatever the message was. But, you know, one of them ended up be the hammer. And it was just hammer, hammer. And uh, that was, um, you know, that we also had a call, which was funny. Um, we When we would run, like, um, if I'm playing left guard, you know, obviously put a, a 10 on a center spot. So all the numbers to the left. If you're facing the center, there's a 10 on his butt. All the numbers to the left are odd. All the mm -hmm. numbers to the right are even. So if you hear like 92, play, 94, yeah. that's going right. When you hear 95, 93, 95 is going left. So playing left guard, if we had a three technique on a 94, which was an inside zone, what happened was we would kind of, and I, I love zone blocking because what it is is everybody just kind of got on mm -hmm. and then the running back would just kind of like pick his deal. So it was like the, we could go front side, could go backside. We always ran backside on 94, we would always start this way because we had something that was called punch and hammer where I would take a zone step to the right and then I, and if it was a three technique, what happened was the tackle and I were going to work together to work the three up to the backer. So what I, I like depending on his position, if he was like a two or a two I or a three, I would take a zone because I was always trying to play two thirds inside out. So I would zone step and then I would drive so violently with my outside foot and I could get almost pin my elbow to my hip and mm -hmm. I could drive and lift anybody with one hand keeping my outside eye free and then the tackle would slip in right behind me and we would double that guy and then what I would do is almost hide and then when the backer would see the running back he would scrape and I could come up just at the right time to catch him in his ear hole and fucking knock him down right. or drive him where I wanted and then this whole thing would mash this way and then the back would come back and that's how we made our money and so that block we called punch and hammer because they were like... It's like shake and bake. Well, it, it, it became. And actually, we ended up calling it... The, the technique ended up becoming punch and hammer. Because I would literally punch my hand. And then I could hammer that motherfucker. And we would hammer him up. So, I mean, like, there was all these interesting things where it's like, you know, be the hammer. Punch and hammer. You know, I hammered that dude. We went out and got hammered. I mean, you know, the hammer was something <laughs> that for some reason has been, like, instrumental through all this stuff. But... Man, it was a it was a really fun job, and I, I call it a job because uh, um, it wasn't a lifestyle, um, you know. And uh, I think people have a negative association with job, 
I think, you know, and I always hated that, like the person that like, you know, like if you, if you love what you're doing, you never work a single day. It's bullshit. It's always work. Um, but I really enjoyed the fact that I got to train, I got to watch film and I got to effectively sharpen my blade, forge my hammer every day within the training, within the film study, all the other stuff. So that when I got to go out, we got to utilize this stuff very well. Now, when I got to go play tackle and I was very fortunate to play with Will Shields, one of the best to ever do the game. Um, I tried to be the tackle that I always wanted to play with. So we talk a lot about like be the athlete that you want to coach. So when uh-huh. we were working with uh, Victor and Rush from Six Blades, you know, you had an interesting point the other day where when you're the athlete, be the athlete that you want to coach because those guys coach jujitsu and they work with athletes. So I think the minute that you transition back from like coach to athlete, athlete to coach, that's something that's so important. Yeah. And so I played tackle and I played it with a, a, a really talented, good dude named Trey Thomas. Um, but Trey, um, you know, on certain occasions, like, uh, you know, like laid off the ball or, you know, didn't always do as much as he should. And, you know, there was I fucking got my leg broken because he was laid off the ball. We went to punch and hammer. He was late. I went to come off in the backer. The defense lineman tackled the running back in the back leg and I broke my leg. You know, so I mean, shit, I was playing against John Randall, which is always fucking fun. For those of you guys that don't know John Randall, go to YouTube, look up John Randall. He was the original dude. Eye black. With the eye black in the face. Mm-hmm. And he used to bark. He was so fucking fast. He had a spin move that would like, I think dudes were tired rather than go against that spin move. We're going to play Seattle. Trey gets nervous, takes too big a step inside, steps on my ankle and blows my ankle up. Yeah. So you told you told that my first CrossFit football seminar, so 2019 or 2009, and yeah. took, yeah, that 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 moment had an impact on me because you were giving everything you had. Yeah. And like, well, well, he was real nervous because I can't remember the defensive end. Oh, I know who it was. It was Grant Winstrom. He was real nervous to play Grant, and so he was nervous to get get beat inside because they were running some really nasty stunts. Stepped inside, took way too big a fucking step. So it's a tackle, like so we play in little islands, right? Like it's a it, it's like a violent orchestra, right? I have like this is my little stance. <laughs> it is a violent orchestra, and I have my little box, right? And this is my box, and I master my box, and I can move any position, and I own this little space. And the problem is, is that I'm expecting the people that I play with to respect my box in pass pro. Now there's certain times when like we know we're working together where I invite you into my space or uh-huh. I can go help you in your space. But I never invited or went into somebody else's space and did anything other than attack the individual. So like there's a, like, uh, I've told the story, we went down to Miami uh, to go play against Jason Taylor and those guys and uh, Trey ended up not playing. Artist Hicks, who was, went to go play tackle, was super, you know, young guy, super nervous. I was like, yo, man, we're just go two jet. We're going to slide this way. And when he comes inside, I'm going to bust him up. And ended up, he ended up doing this big jump swim inside and I busted his rib. And thank God we did, or we would have had a long day. But um, that piece where we go play uh, Seattle and Trey took too big a step inside. And dude, basically, here's my ankle. He stepped on the side of my foot, my ankle, to where my, the inside ankle touched this turf. And I heard it fucking pop. My fucking ligament's gone. And so they fucking come out, cart me off. And uh, my backup went in, who was Doug Brzezinski, um, which uh, wasn't probably a real favorable matchup, seeing as Doug wasn't, you know, hadn't played, wasn't warm. I mean, it's just a fucking bad day. So what do they do? They get me on the bench and they start throwing tape on it. 
and start casting it and casting it. And I'm like, there is no fucking way I can do this. And they're like, no, we got to get you back out there. So they fucking, I hobble back out there and I see fucking John laughing because he's looking at my ankle. He starts laughing. And I was like, motherfucker. And uh, he throws, he like took this massive step out and I set out knowing that I couldn't come back inside. But he went so hard outside, I plant and he throws this spin move and I just fucking crumble like a fucking ton of bricks. And I was like, yo, man, I'm like, uh, we ended up getting, I gave up a hit. I don't think I gave up a sack, but it was enough to where I was like, like, I can't do this. Like, I'm like, this dude is enough of a handful when all the fucking bullets are flying and I'm 100%. You can't basically fucking remove my foot and my lateral ability and expect me to fucking block John Randall on a Sunday. So, but that was what I think they, um, you know, that was the job they asked. And they had this idea that somehow I would like make it happen. I'm like, well, fuck, dude. Like, you can't fucking blow my ankle out. And then 10 minutes later, when, uh, you know, they x rayed it, I mean, all the ligaments were torn, everything was fucked. I mean, the, uh, the swelling was so bad that they couldn't get the swelling out. So one of our docs was an osteopath that worked with uh, also horses. And I like hit him up and was like, yo, man, you got any DS- DMSO? So next day when we got back to Kansas City, he brings over a bunch of DMSO, fucking sops it up, wraps it up. Next day, all the fucking swelling was gone, which was good. But I still had no ligaments in the ankle. <laughs> so I had to do like a bunch of proprioception, get that motherfucker to fire and end up playing on that. So, I mean, so that was the... Uh, the hallmark of it. Like I think, well, it's, it, it has grown and, and that's what I want to highlight and then talk to a couple points as well. Like it, it's not just you as an athlete and then you've evolved as a man and the, the message has evolved to be the hammer to where we can make an impact. Well, and it's, it's really had taken on a life of its own with Harry and all of us but, and but, all the community finding hilarious shit on social media and then tagging it as well, being I, the hammer. I suppose that proceeds. Well, what I'm the point I'm going to make. But uh, okay. Yeah, Harry, Harry turning this into an amazing campaign. Now he doesn't have to search funny videos. People well, like you like it, funny videos, and they send it to us all the time. I mean, the amount of stuff that people send me with like uh, uh, BTH is hilarious. Yeah, we just looked at one earlier where uh, oh yeah. uh, the chick got flipped in the oh, god damn it like the internet and to be seen on at Power Athlete HQ, HQ Instagram. Yeah, uh, but imagining like. We're in the business of forging hammers. Power athlete, we are strength and conditioning blacksmith and transforming pure potential and raw material well, of our athletes into steel there's we no know way, they can be. There's no way to mold something without heating it. So, I mean, like there's, um, you know, if you look at the forging process, you effectively take a lump of steel and you heat it. and Then you take a hammer or something harder than that and you beat it into shape. You allow it to cool. You quench or you let it cool, you put it back in the forge and you heat, and there's this constant cycle of you can only move metal when it's hot. You can't cold, you know, I mean, if you beat on it when it's cold, it's not gonna, it's not gonna do anything. You'll get cold shuts and it'll crack. So there's a interesting training metaphor with this that if you wanna create the strongest hammers, you gotta create the hottest fire, and you gotta hit it and swing it, and you gotta hit it and temper it just enough. And the interesting part is you can put all of this effort into forging a hammer, making it look great and polishing and cleaning and this. But at the end of the day, it has to be useful. It has to have the right weight, has to have the right, I mean, the amount of hammers we have in the shop is pretty high. And if, I don't know, if you've seen a few of the hammers, um, have a real bitch in heads and I've broken handles on most of them. So the wood handles, after you end up really beating the shit out of them, the handles end up breaking, which is fine because I just started welding chromoly pipe 
on the hammers. So I have a set of three yeah. hammers in the shop that actually we broke the handles on, but the they, and they were actually really amazing, like 1800s, 1900s vintage hammers that I, I bought off of eBay and um, have since taken them and welded chromoly steel, like inch, inch and a quarter steel uh, onto them. So take a, a blowtorch, oxyacetylene torch, heat that motherfucker up, put it on there and fucking run a real nice hot bead on it. And um, what's wild is people are like, you can't weld. Uh, you know, like how are you going to put like metal handles on hammers? And I'm like, because I'm fucking strong. And on top of it, I don't want them to break. And if we really need to fuck something up, I got no problem holding on to that thing. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com slash training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathletehq. And now back to the show. Utility is the key word. I'm going to pull from that and expand on that. So going back to your experience as an athlete and then like I, I was a collegiate athlete myself and we had a hammer award for the biggest the biggest hit. So I was 2006 hammer award and going back to where I had the opportunity to speak to my alma mater, the current team, same head coach, which is good on him. The question that I posed to them, and it's, it's a question and a struggle that I had and utility is the key word here. The, the athlete paradox and these individuals I'm speaking to, but uh, hopefully our listeners can find a way to relate to this question. So these are D three all-stars. They'll never be on the bottom line of ESPN. They'll never be on the highlights. Da, 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 They'll da. never have more than, I don't know, a hundred people at their games. But does that matter? That's that's what I'm... I'm it doesn't. Let, yeah, let me rock and roll here. But so they will have friends that are going to university and going to football games, Alabama, Tennessee, all that good, awesome stuff. But at the same time, they are spending... Hours on hours training. They're investing their time. Sure. But at the end of it, what's it all worth? What does it matter? So the paradox, let me complete this thought. The paradox is everything, the training, the time at practice, the travel, the the stress of school on top of the expectation and practice and everything of being a collegiate athlete. And you're never going to essentially be worth anything outside of those walls. So this is what I challenge them to now think about and find meaning. Where this connects to our our audience, they're in their garage gym. They're in the Globo gym. They're training. What's it all for? So the old phrase that we used to have, what are you training for? Yeah, no. It's a specific uh, goal. What's, what's wild is how many people have since globbed onto that one and other bug goal. Yeah. Well, yeah, hold on. So the, the specific goal, but then as, as we've mentioned a lot in this podcast, like we move on from specific goals or we accomplish the goal and then what? So this utility, this usefulness, this idea of athleticism, and now with the hammer making an impact, that was the point I was, I was helping them lead to. So we're training to be step into uh, jujitsu and just be u- useful, to be able to push a car off the street. So whatever it is in front of you, you have the athleticism, the strength, the power, 
to then be useful and then make an impact. So this is this athlete paradox that I pose to them. And I encourage them to just start to build a wall around themselves as a team. So isolating them, you know, college campuses these days, people are telling them how to think and feel and just focus on who you got in front of you. Why does this matter? You'll never be on the bottom line, but you're going to have a lifelong friend next to you. Sure. You are going to lean on your alumni work network to at least get a, a, a career started potentially. So it's this opportunity to start to be useful, develop relationships and have an impact on one another. As you mentioned in the, the, the first college fight story where your boys left you hanging and that was the, the last time they ever made that mistake. And now they were able to, to, to come to your aid in that in moment. And they're yeah. getting referenced on Power Athlete Radio. How great uh, could that be? I always think on that one. Um, if, somebody has to, if somebody had to punish me for me to get into the fray, then uh, that's a, that, that was always weird for me. And I didn't think about that at the time. Um, uh, you know, like if somebody was going to fight or if there was going to be something to go down, I'm always going to be in the middle of it just because uh, that's how I roll. I would never stand by and watch somebody. Now, What's interesting about a hammer is when you forge that hammer, and there's hammers in the shop that, you know, I might only grab occasionally. I got one that's what I call fuck you when I really got to pull it out. It's got a, a nine-pound head, and it's got like an inch and a half-inch uh, piece of chromoly and a long deal. And so when we pull out, when things get real, like just go get that big fuck you hammer. And uh, we don't use it very often because we don't have to. We don't have to. But that hammer is there when we need it. So I look at a lot of the skills that we've developed, whether it be, you know, uh, in performance training, lifting weights. Now what's different than a hammer than us is our skills are perishable. That hammer is always going to be hard. It's always going to be ready. It's always going to be sitting there, even though it's dusty, I don't even have to blow the dust off. I can just pick it up and smash things. Um, now us as humans, we have perishable skills. If we don't continue to train, if we don't continue to lift weights, if we don't continue to challenge ourselves like this weekend, Tex and I are going to a shooting course with Mr. Jeff Gonzalez for Tricon, which should be uh-huh. a blast. And one of my college teammates. And one of your college teammates is coming in town. Um, that's a perishable skill. Now, I dry fire out of a holster, uh, not every single day, but uh, every time I carry concealed, which is mostly when I leave the house, I always make sure to put on clothes and work on a draw, and I try to dry, dry fire as much as I can so that my skills are not perishable. Now, training is perishable. Conditioning is perishable. I mean, all of these skills different than a hammer. But if you think about the utility of a hammer, it is always ready. So in a way, like there's a interesting kind of parallel in this and that even though our skills are perishable, much like the hammer, you have to be ready at all times to use your skills. And you don't know when that's going to be presented for you. Uh, whether it be, like we said, you pull up in traffic and some dude, you know, car's broken down, people are honking and you get out. Um, you know, I might be in fucking flip-flops, which happened to me. I kicked off my shoes and barefoot fucking pushed that car through, you know, on, on the, on, on the road. Um, you know, there's many other things that have happened when I've thought to myself, shit, man, one, I'm glad I'm strong Two, I'm glad I'm pretty conditioned. And three, I'm glad that I have the, uh, the wherewithal to be able to do all these things because if I wasn't, there aren't people that are, that are in the same mindset. Um, in, in, in line with that, it's also the things outside of that. So we talked, you talked about skill and structure, musculature, uh, and abilities, but also think back to what training has given you and the lessons that you learned about yourself. And I mean, we only hire 
basically people that played team sports. <laughs> yeah, we learned <laughs> that the hard way. So in line with that, and going back to the college dudes, like emphasizing all of these different skills, leadership, communication, calling somebody out like your teammate that he loafed on a play, yeah. calling them out for loafing it because it cost you your injury. Yeah. No, I so mean, uh, I, I mean, dude, like I can think of, of two different injuries, the broken leg and also that ankle. But you have to remember, man, like. Um, but nobody taught him that lesson. Uh, like, like, but here's the thing. Um, and this is what's pretty fascinating, Chris. And I, and I like listen to like when you come and give these talks and you like, I'm, I'm always amazed that you, that you invest this stuff. I just wonder how many people, and this is the interesting part. Sometimes when you're young and this is, um, you know, some that we're, we're getting into with, with our uh, young jujitsu guys. I think when you're young, it's difficult to understand the magnitude. So what's interesting is you see, you've gone through this, uh, interesting like metamorphosis where you've been where they are and now you're looking back with like your mind's eye and the lens of the of like the future and where you've been allows you to have this like almost clairvoyant understanding of like looking back it's kind of like my kids if you just listen to me i'll give you the cheat codes in life yeah and do they listen no do you know why because you have to figure that shit out for yourself now if they ask me i could 100 I've, I've told them all the time like if you want the cheat codes of life i'll give them to you do you, but do they really want them? But here's the thing. Like if somebody gave you all that, like, and, and here's, you know, here's the deal. Like Tom Modrak kneels down and tells me this. And I remember it verbatim over 20 plus years later. Why? Because I was really young. It was probably before I took all these big hits to the head. So I have definitely <laughs> great memories before then. But uh, I went back and I wrote it down. And yeah. uh, I had it on a piece of paper. And it was the, uh, and I've, dude, I've, I've recited it forever, right? And like, um, you know, football's a violent game, which makes me laugh now that they've effectively knocked the edges off of football and they've made it a nonviolent game. And, you know, maybe they brought in some minority owners, so maybe it's not just rich white men, but it'll always be rich white men. And there is a deal where now violence and violent men and the people that did this are looked upon as not favorable. So it's, it, it, that's when people, you know, we talked about with Nick Hardwick, we talked about with uh, Evan Britton, same thing, that the game is effectively changed into something different than it was, you know, and, uh, you know, everything has to evolve or it dies. Uh, I think with the way football was going, when you have guys like Junior Seau shooting themselves and saying something's wrong, yeah. like, like it has to change. So I'm, I'm not a purist in that sense to realize like. But he, Bob said that to you and you remembered so if he had the mindset of, ah, these, these young rookies will never listen to me. I'm just a GM or they see me as an authority figure. They're not going to listen. But he invested in you. I don't know what he said to other dudes. I don't, I don't know, know if they held on to it. And, and, but uh, you did, and it's one out of 53. Yeah. Well, I, I did ask other players, hey, did Tom Modrick come talk to you? And they said no. So I was the only player from my draft class that he talked. I think he, he might have uh, – we had a tight end named Jed – who played at Oregon. I can't remember his last name for the life of me. Um, I think he might have talked to him, but he didn't give him the same talk that he gave me. But, um, you know, of those guys that went and played, you know, McNabb obviously had, had a, a good career, um, you know, played for a long time. Uh, but, you know, Barry Gardner didn't, you know, Doug and those guys. I mean, of, of those individuals, Damian Douglas got drafted after me. I mean, I think of those guys, um, you know, I mean, obviously had a pretty good career. But I really... Um, I fucking embraced it. I, uh, exactly. And, and, and I think the, the issue of it, and this is something like, like I, uh, uh, regrets a motherfucker, right? And there's a lot of things. I think the older you get, 
And I, you know, you can listen to the fucking Andrew Tate's and all these uh, internet fucking simps um, on social media be like, you know, fuck regret and all this stuff. You cannot have lived in this life without mistakes. And it's like, you know, you shouldn't regret anything. And, you know, I only regret the shit I didn't do, not the shit I did. And that's bullshit. Because I say that, and it's not true. There are regrets. You have to have regrets. Because the only way that you move forward and effectively look at your life and you're like, hey, I'm not going to, this isn't going to be paralyzing regret where I'm not going to go live my fucking life. But I realized that there's certain things that I regret happened and I'm not going to remake those mistakes. My dad told me a long time ago, if I got to make every mistake, it's going to be a long fucking life. You got to learn from the mistakes of others, right? Wise man learns from the mistake of others, you know, that deal. And, um... There were ways that I handled things that, you know, I look back and I'm like, fuck, I don't think I would have handled that the same way. Uh, the way I played the game, and I think the attention to detail and the effort and, uh, you know, I, I like probably should have just not been pissed about getting fucked on my contract in, in Philly and stayed there for 10 years and been a hallmark. And, you know, I probably still show up and have a fucking parade in that town. Uh, but at the time I was very black and white. And at the time I felt like, hey, a man's word means something. Not realizing that like, you know, it's a kid's approach that, you know, business people get fucked all the time and that's just the way of the world. Is it right? Is it wrong? No, but unfortunately that's how shit works. So, uh, the regret of, you know, but do I regret going to play for the chiefs? No, I got a chance to play with Will Shields and Tony Gonzalez and Jason Dunn and some of the best guys to ever play the game. And it was extremely important. The fact that I got to get plucked off of one really good team and go to a, another amazing team. Did we win as many games? No, because we didn't have the chemistry. We didn't have just the wherewithal like the understanding and we didn't have the food. If we had, had a better kitchen and better, better meals, we probably would have done better. But, um, uh, I think, you know, like, you know, regrets an interesting teacher, you know, uh, Rocky Balboa, right? Like life's fucking world's hardest teacher, right? It's going to fucking beat you down. You got to get up. I mean that, that, uh, that monologue that he gives in Rocky, Rocky six, Rocky six to his kid is fucking great when he comes out of the restaurant, but it's true. And I think, if you look, or and I, not that I think, but um, I truly believe, really believe, and I hate saying the word truly because that's another crutch word we get into, but I believe that when you look back on your life, um, you know, you have to feel proud of the life that you've led and that, you know, you did it right at the time. And what's so difficult is allowing young athletes to understand that, like, you have this small point in life. Right. You got the rest of your life to go out and be a, a dad and have a dad bod and not do this shit. You and you know, and this is what's funny, young athletes bitch about this. And it's like nobody will bitch as bad as when you don't have to do this. Like that's what's so nice about having like young gohards come and train the gym and being able to go train with those guys is because it it allows fucking people like me who this was my entire life to be able to to like live vicariously through them. And you know what? Like I'm totally fine with it. Uh, like I'm more like I, at this point in my life, if I can work with somebody and have them raise their hand as the champion, like I feel, whereas before, and it's taken me many years to do this. Uh -huh. That's why I could never go coach. It's why I never got in the NFL to go coach. That's why I didn't do it was that I was not okay without being the person on the field doing it. I wasn't okay to be in the crowd. I wasn't okay to, to be the, the support crew. It's taken me a number of years to do it. And, um, I think like when you're going out and talking to these young athletes and trying to give them this like interesting information, I wonder how many of them can see the reality of what's happening at this exact moment that like they listen like, uh, who's this fucking old dude coming back? We got to get the fuck out of here. And now I got to listen to an extra 30 minutes opposed from like, 
holy shit, man, this former player came back to talk to us and he's probably been where we are and is giving us like ghost of Christmas past type vision and type information. I should probably listen to this motherfucker. Well, I had a different, uh, I had a few different angles, certainly a three prong approach that you know very well. Sure. You know, busting some balls and uh, sharing some cheeky shenanigans that uh, uh, me and my classmates partook in that they certainly, I don't know if they could get away with today, but sure. uh, it's all in bounds. It's a different time. Yeah. But the, the importance was, and I wasn't trying to, and I, I mean, we had these people come back to say, this is the, the best four years of your life. Like yeah. my brother-in-law played it's, um, before me and it was like, yeah, you, you yeah. know, that guy. So seeing the old guys come around and try to hang out at the party, it's like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. I wasn't trying to be that guy. It was, uh, and I pulled a- <laughs> Hey, old dudes, I'm drinking all of our fucking beer. Yeah. I pulled a book from, a page from Vision Quest and emphasized, like, it's, it's not the four years. It's what happens in the four years that matters. And how my, my coach un, unknowingly played into this, because how he introduced me to the team- like he was saying what I accomplished in my college career. So we beat his first ranked team, game ball, three-year captain, all that. So he, you know, even though I've done a hell of a lot more professionally than I did as a collegiate athlete, D3 all-star, and I make fun of the the whole, that's half my shtick. But uh, he was able to then uh, recant some of my accolades as an athlete, and that's how he, he introduced me. Mm-hmm. So even though I feel more accomplished as a professional than I did a, an athlete that was still meaningful to him. And within those four years was able to accomplish a lot than I, I, sh- I should, you know, certainly shouldn't have as a uh, Texas lacrosse player. But then my, my biggest takeaways, you know, the teamwork, the leadership reps, just speaking and communicating in front sure. of a group. Oh my God. Uh, terror. And like, as you, you've met my college pals, when they had me for the first time, just this shy, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young man that couldn't say his name. So they gave me a name. But, um, yeah, that that opportunity, it's what happens within those four years that they're going to hold on to. And I did not want regret to be yeah. a part of it. I didn't want wins or losses or records to be a part of it. <sighs> I, but the, the travel, the team, the candor, the ball-busting, the fights, yeah just not knowing how to fight and just trying to freaking tackle your own dudes and you have a weapon. Like it's a great fucking time. Those are memories versus like, I don't remember any of the games, but all the, the, uh, the fun stuff around there that then led to like a passion for work, teamwork, camaraderie, and the value to it of shit, man, I got to be on a team that's all working towards one thing and one goal. And we're going to have a great fucking time along the way. Uh, and hopefully eat well and drink well. Sure. Um, yeah, but this this also evolves into the the coach's paradox, as you will experience as you're entering into this coaching phase, John. Uh, I, uh, I, dude, but I, the, the I coaching will always paradox, fight against it. Um, I, 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 and, but the, to pose this, so our, our listeners know what I'm referencing, is meaning you want it more than your athlete, that's why I which sold is my a gym. danger. Yeah. It's it's a trap. It's a danger, and that leads to burnout and failure, and and I. I won't say failure. Well, that leads to burnout and uh, losing a passion for people. Well, it's uh, it's because 
we have age, right? And it's really interesting too that the fact that as you age, you have uh, you know trials and tribulations, one lost, you know, love one, love lost. I mean, all these things to look back on, and this like historical information to like play off of, whether it be regret, success, whatever it is. So you have this historical precedence to look back on, and a big part being a mentor or a coach or whatever it is, is trying to like allow these people to go on, you know, be influence their journey, but it's still their journey. So for example, like working with like Victor and Arash, for example, um, you know, like uh, talking about being a professional and, you know, and, and then uh, Shandi actually played me a nice compliment. He's like, Hey, you know, we went out. Uh, so they went to F1 and uh, mm-hmm. he's like, Hey, we're going to go out after. And he was like, no, I got to go home. We got a training at eight and I need to go home and eat and make sure I'm sli- I sleep because if I show up, it's going to be bad. And I, and sure enough, when I saw them yesterday, I'm like, just stay out late. He's like, no, no, we went home early. We, we eat like we knew we were coming today. And so being able to, whether it's the understanding that like, Hey, you know what? Like I got to be ready. Cause uh, you know, I got a, a lot of work to do or, if I show up fucking off and I know I've partied and I didn't go to sleep, John's going to fuck me up. And we knew, and like, here's the deal. I don't really care. As long as you show up and you're well rested, you've done what you've done. You've eaten your calories and we're you know, we're in this like calorie fight where like it's got to eat, you got to eat, got to, you know, the only way you're going to get put on muscles by getting fucking by eating. So we're in this interesting kind of throes of it where educating and giving him the skills that he needs to be a professional. And, uh, you know, the, it starts slow. Right. So like show up on time, right? Like all the little things about being a professional, do the work, move the dirt, you know, be the hammer, all the other things that we have. But then there's like a, 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 you know, a move to where now, um, this is my business. This is how I generate income. This is how I have to make money. This is how I'm intelligent. And like those questions are next. Like, Hey, if I made some money, what should I do? Should I just stuck it under my bed? And so like being able to like buy a car. Yeah. No. Well, uh, if it's, if it's a $2,000 cheap pickup truck, there's not even cheap pickup trips anymore. Everything's fucking expensive. But like, uh, you know, is this a good idea? Um, and I think having people that have your best interest at heart and have also done this and probably made some mistakes and done some stupid shit is really helpful to be like, yo, man, uh, I'm, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to make your own decisions. But let me just give you a little bit of life lesson or from my point of view. So I think that's an interesting piece. And like, that's really like for me personally. I never really wanted to do that until I became a father. And so now, which is fascinating too, because uh, even when we have like the block one coaches, yeah. um, you know, like uh, at the collective, you know, the empathy or more importantly, like the understanding I have today now is so much greater than it was before I had kids because, um, you know, I mean, your job as a father is to help their kids on their journey to adulthood. And uh, to quote my dad, you know, um, you know, the job of the father is to prepare the kid from when he's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, what also was in, was in Black Panther, you know. And I remember, uh, you know, when my dad was sick, you know, he was like, you know, talking to him. And he's like, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot different as a dad at the end of this thing if your kids are fucking morons. Realizing that, like, you know, you're going to leave this world and you haven't done what you're supposed to. He's like, it, uh, you know, you and your brothers are all like successful. You've done well. You have kids like you're all switched on. You'll take care of your mother. Like that was like a little bit of like, you know, solace in, in at the end for him. I can't imagine as a parent like leaving kids behind who you haven't done what you've needed to do. And, uh, you know, I think with the athletes, the same thing, like they come to you for something specific. 
you give them all you can, you take them on their journey and hopefully you take them on a long journey. And that's, that's the, the component of being a hammer as a coach. You are making an impact. Now I am forging an athlete versus being the, the hammer on the field and performing and executing. So the beauty of the term, it, it expands beyond once your athletic career is over as a performance-based athlete, then you can still can continue to make an impact and empower. And it means saying not the harsh things, but the hard thing when they need it. Well, but uh, so here, here's another thing. Um, I don't necessarily know if you have to, like, I'll just give you an example. So like you go out and you coach these lacrosse kids. Is it much more meaningful to them? Do they respect your word because you played college lacrosse and you were a lacrosse player? Are there coaches that didn't play lacrosse or didn't play at a high level? Well, in Texas, yeah, there's a lot, which okay. is fine. Well, well, which is fine. I know. But like, do you think like, cause I, I know for me, uh, when I was a young dude playing for, uh, in college, you know, Tom Cable played offensive line. Dave Watson was our GA had played for the, uh, Chicago bears. So like the, the fact that those guys had played the game, uh, you know, Cable, I don't think played, you know, he was a scab, but he still played. So for us, like that was important. Like the, like the dudes that were coaching us had done the job. Well, so like when all of a sudden there were coaches that had never played, like there was always a weird thing for me personally, like, uh, like I never, it felt disingenuous. It's part of the reason we started working with the Jits guys. I started going and doing it because I have a hard time, uh, coaching somebody and like helping them if I don't understand the demands. Now for football, you know, when we were working with, um, uh, Riley, uh-huh. uh, the kid that from dripping, we or actually know the new Braunfels unicorns. Yes. Uh, I actually got his hit da- up by his dad, his dad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. His dad sent us a nice deal. Uh, like working with that kid, um, I've been where he's standing. You know, I've been that young kid. I've gotten up getting recruited, playing at a high level, uh, you know, being able to work with that kid and being able to like help him and see and like, and realizing like he's pretty talented. He's got a, he's got a future if he continues on the right path. And uh, whereas, you know, if if you were to take me out there with a bunch of lacrosse players, like we could talk about strength conditioning and all the other stuff, but like the point of reference for me, like I'd never played lacrosse. Like I don't know. But with this particular group, I understand what, where you're coming from and what you're saying, but then we got a dude on staff that played at division one school. So then I'm immediately now, uh, lower on that totem pole and respect. So I can't lean on that ethos. Well, but, but I mean, uh, it like, and I don't No, but at the end of the day, do the kids know the difference between division one, division three? Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Oh really? Oh, Uh okay. But the most of, and the, majority and I, I don't lie to him I talked to him about coordination I talked to him about essentially athleticism and the beauty is I can show them through our, our movements and our practices and then f- if I see a limitation I have no qualms about calling somebody out and um, if it's a teaching moment for the team then we can utilize and say hey guys gather around this is what I'm talking about when I say this and show them the uh, the limitation or the the performance, the explosivity, or the progress of a kid uh, that's that's going through it and, and giving a damn. Um, but the uh, yeah, and the athlete now in line with the athlete paradox and the parents out there to to uh, add on to your point, like why are they doing this? Why are they in their garage? Why at six a.m. Call, calling uh, props to Chris Luke out there who just had a kid and he's he's been one of our longtime clients. And uh, 
why is he doing it in the basement in freaking Colorado and shoveling snow is so he can then make an impact and have a representation, a healthy relationship with training, hard work, well, fitness for his family. To go back to my brother, Ed, um, it's just what we do. That's so like I like, yes. like my like, like we've talked about this. Uh, um, so my brother, Ed, ruptures patellar tendon. And uh, a little over a year ago, and I remember as he was coming back rehabbing, uh, we used to talk or we were talking about it a bunch. And his comment was like, I can't believe you had this same injury and you came back one year and started. He's like, I just got done running like it's fucking amazing. I'm like, yeah, I was also 23, 24 years old. You're like, you know, like closer to 50. Right. And uh, but like, you know, like what was the choice to give up? That's the easy way out. That's not who we are. And like my entire life, uh, it's always been like, you know, like the fucking road less traveled, like, you know, to quote my dad too. I mean, you know, when life gets hard, just put your shoulder against the wind and don't stop moving. Keep fucking soldiering on, put your shoulder against the wind and just go. And, uh, you know, like I joke with my wife on shit all the time. I was like, what are we going to stop? Like, we're not going to stop. Like can't stop, won't stop. I tell that to the kids all the time. Can't stop, won't stop. And it's, uh, you to know, do work. Does that ever Come uh, enough? Fucking no. <laughs> so, uh, the Ariana song. So we had a coach, uh, so at the, at the chiefs, we had a dude named Billy long, who was the brother coordinator. I think I've told you about the brother coordinator. You got to have somebody who's like, you know, like, uh, basically like works with the coach and like, just make sure that like, when shit's going crazy, he can kind of come in and diffuse. He's like the guy that breaks up the union a little bit. He doesn't work for management, just kind of a dude. So Billy Long was what I like to call the brother coordinator in that he would just make sure that like fucking when things were getting crazy and people were going wild, he was the dude that came in. And uh, he was always like, oh, work, work, work. And then the Rihanna song, you know, where it's like, <laughs> work, 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 work. And so with like, I still fucking laugh. And uh, I'll play that for the kids all the time. I was like, what, you know, I'm like, hey, what are we doing today? I'm like, we got to go outside and do some yard work and I'll play the Rihanna song. I'll be just like Billy Long said, you got to do work, 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 work. But no, uh, I don't say that other than to joke with them. But yeah. I think you got to have a good, uh, at least me, like there's um, an interesting blend of like having like, uh, I don't know, like if my dad, my, my dad didn't do this when we were kids. It wasn't until I got older. But like my dad didn't really joke with us a ton when we were kids. Like my dad was super like fucking just on it. Uh, but like I've tried to like joke with my kids and have a sense of humor and like laugh and joke. And to be like, hey, like remember, like we can joke and we can be friendly. But at the end of the day, we're not friends. I'm your dad. But uh -huh. like but having enough sense of humor and enough joke and sarcasm and that, that. So I've tried to do that with my kids. Whereas my dad didn't do that until later. Uh, and even then, uh having an extremely smart condescending father probably shaped my sense of humor and more importantly, our wit very young. Yeah. What well, going back to the, the talk with the college kids that, uh, I did speak to that and that's can't, there's a technical term candor and the lesson I aim to teach at them, like shit talk is a sign of love and, uh, used Harry's, uh, sticker here, but did you die to help make that point? And then, if you think about it in the workplace, talking shit, camaraderie, you're you're the pro's pro when it comes to that. But you're seeing and testing somebody's ability to then take criticism, yeah, constructive criticism, and give it back. You know, do they take uh, like high offense to it? And this is this is what I tried to paint to the college kids: like, dude, talk shit on each other. And that's what I led off with. You know, some of the just poking fun at some of the kids as they filed into the like the team meeting room. 
just to help start to break the ice and like realize like I'm not going to, you know, tell them like it is. Like I'm here to just help oh, make fuck. some points. And Let paint, me tell you how it is. You're like, yeah, oh, God. And paint a picture of perspective and hopefully you take on Dude, some of these lines. Uh, so when I was a rookie, uh, we had this thing called the uh, NFL Symposium, right? The Rookie Symposium, which they had where they'd bring, bring all the rookies and like they'd bring in all these ex-players and people and they put this whole thing, role play and shit. And uh, pretty much got disbanded when Chris Carter got up and said, yo, uh, you young guys need to like you know, in your posse and your crew, you need to have a fall guy. You need to have one dude who's on payroll where shit goes down. He can step up and take the heat. You got to have a fall guy. So, uh, but yeah, dude, like there was uh so you're going to love this Philly story and Antonio probably appreciate this at old veteran stadium after the games, the uh, concession people would like, you know, all the pretzels and shit they would sell instead of throwing it away, they would just dump all of it into like, uh, like in like the, um, like where the seats, they would just dump it, just throw the food down, and then they would leave, like all like the pretzels and like hot dogs and all that shit. And uh, there were these monster nuclear like thirty pound cats that lived around Veteran Stadium, in Veteran Stadium, like all around. Like there wasn't a rat in that entire place, so they basically fed the cats with all this shit. So one day we're like, you know, like down in Veteran Stadium. What's that? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, they, they ate everything, right? Like, I think they were eating the rats, like, they were eating everything. Well, all I know was that one day we were, uh, like, walking in the tunnel, and these huge cats fell through the fucking roof. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're, like, looking at these, like, 30-pound, like, Fat feral Garfield. cats, massive cats. And we were, like, holy shit. Like, we, like, turned around, and these cats were pretty legendary because they fucked up everything. And uh, yeah, I, that's a good point. They, I, I don't know if they were, I mean, cats will eat just, they'll, they'll eat everything, but I, uh, I think they turned them into omnivores, but like after they would throw hot dogs and all this other shit. And I remember being like, this is a terrible practice. You guys are feeding all these fucking nuclear cats. So when they blew up veteran stadium, so when they went and built the lake, they imploded veteran stadium and uh, it was a big deal. I remember as that thing detonated, we were there and all I could think of is like those poor cats, fat cats, all those fat cats got buried under all that rubble. That was Philly, though. South Philly, man. They, uh, it, it was a great place. So people are like, oh, yeah, where'd you live in Philly? I tell them, like, oh, I lived in Rittenhouse. I also lived in Maniunk. I used to work in South Philly. And they never put two and two together. Not like where? I'm like, off of Broad Street. Broad Street Brawlers? Yeah, Broad Street Brawlers. 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 That was the T-shirts I made with my fist. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a great time, man. I, I did enjoy playing in KC. Um, it wasn't nearly as entertaining as playing in Philly. Like there was just like, I'll just give you an example. When I went to Kansas I've City. I've been to both cities. I get it. So when I first got traded to Kansas City, uh, I went out to dinner with all the guys. We were sitting at this restaurant. And like they came over and brought a bill to us. And I looked and I was like, wow, you guys pay for dinner? We hadn't paid for dinner in so long. We used to show up to places and like. Pro athlete parking. Oh, dude. They would come <laughs> over and be like, dinner's on us. We would just tip them. Like, I, I remember one night we were at this sushi restaurant right off of, uh, um, man, it was on, uh, God, it was right off of 2nd Street, and it was this dope sushi restaurant. And we went in, dude, we ate, like, like this dude brought over, like, you know, like one of those boats. It must have had 300 pieces of sushi on it. It was huge. And, like, at the end, like, I got done, and, like, we drank sake. We, like, you know, all the, dude, it was amazing. Like, one of the best meals I've ever had. 
thank you so much for coming. It's on the house. Like tip the dude. I mean, we used to go to Morimoto, like all those Steven Star restaurants. Dude, we never paid for anything. I used to give his like uh, scheduler tickets. I mean, dude, Deuce Staley and I used to go out every uh, every Thursday night to, to a different restaurant. Like it was, it was like the the restaurants even in Philly is legendary, and we never paid for shit. Which at the end of the day, we had money to pay, but it's nice to have somebody pick up and like the little bit of respect you get. Whereas in Kansas City, you're like fucking dump. So that kind of sucked, but I'm sure Casey's a little bit better now. I'm sure Patrick Mahomes doesn't pay for meals. We don't know. Richard Ari, unless you got to pay. <laughs> hey, he's it's a funny half, how that works. half B. He's a good player, though. Man, uh, Casey's pretty good, but Philly's playing great, too. Philly is fucking, and they could be in the World Series. So, Oh, shit, yeah. I mean, the, the birds are playing well. I mean, the Phillies. I mean, dude, going to a Phillies game is pretty amazing, so... I'm, uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I know the historical preference whenever the Phillies win a national or a World Series. Uh, it's usually America's in a terrible recession. Well, e- economic collapse, yeah. Yeah, economic collapse. So I'm hoping for America that the that, Astros win. Well, I'm an Astros you, fan. Uh, now you're an Astros fan. Well, I, I am. Uh, we, we went to a game this year, and uh, man, it was uh, it was an amazing. Not only the the, uh, the stadium was so clean, the juice box. It was, uh, it was super cool. The way it was set up with the roof. I mean, air it was so nice. But it was fun. We had a great time. So I'm rooting for the for the Houston Astros. But uh, I still like I still got a little bit of loyalty to to, to Philly. What about you, Antonio? Rooting for the uh, Phillies? I mean Sixers, but I don't really. I mean I don't really watch. Yeah, you're so really just you're kind of like a King of Prussia guy. You're not even like a Philly guy. Not well, nah. Philly, you're like Bucks County, right? You're like uh, the Northeast. No, no, no. I live because I went to Temple. So I, live I know. I'm fucking just talking shit ah, to you. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I do have a little, mostly just the Sixers. That's pretty yeah. much it. Nice. So, do you feel like uh, anything else you want to know about the be the hammer, the hammer type mentality? Well, I feel an empowering message to close it out. I mean, the the weight, the impact, all this imagery that can come with it, and I mean, hard work does pay off. So whether you're a garage gym athlete busting your ass alone or out there as a coach or an athlete. I mean, there's so much to it and meaning like don't get lost in the paradox of what does it all mean? What's worth it? Because you can get lost real quick. You know, I mean, don't, um, don't you think that's like a rite of passage having an existential moment like that? I mean, I I know this happened to me one, uh, like not too long ago, you know, like, uh, the problem is existential moments always happen at like 3am when you like wake up and you're like, you know, what am I doing? Is it all for naught? Does it mean anything? Is it impactful? Have I done what I set out to do? And that's an interesting piece. And I think that be the hammer mentality is like, you know, like, don't think. Just sometimes it's helpful to just be a blunt instrument and fucking smash something. So uh, I appreciate that. And I think like, you know, we always think about sharpening the blade. And I use a lot of analogies of that. But sometimes you just need a blunt instrument to fucking smash things. So. Be a blood instrument, train, and be a hammer. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Power Healthy Radio. Bye. Bye.